Good morning, Petaluma. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming live online at kpca.fm. Welcome to this segment of our program. Today's guests will be Chief Ken Savano of our police department and Emily Cherrier, the new publisher of the Argus Courier. This program uh, with me, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, comes to you in the hope that you'll have the opportunity to meet many of our community members who are our leaders, our heroes, uh, making a difference in our lives day by day. And it's a pleasure to have Chief Savano here for the first uh, segment of our program. Welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Feldman. Pleasure to be here. It's great. Um, I was honored to be at your swearing-in a year and a half ago or even more uh, at City Council and uh, to work with you frequently in community issues and endeavors. So it's great to have you here today and have this opportunity to have our community learn a little bit more about you and about what's happening with our police department, a vital, vital, vital part of the Petaluma community. So let me just ask you, what? Uh, how did you get into this business? Did You grow, you grew up here, right? I did, yes. Uh, my family uh, moved to Petaluma in about 1970 and uh, lived on Caulfield Lane. Uh, when Caulfield was widened to four lanes, uh, Mom got a little worried that my younger brother and I would um, be in jeopardy from traffic, so uh, we moved to Katati and uh, stayed connected to Petaluma City Schools and then ultimately uh, went on to uh, Roanoke Park Unified and uh, Ranch Katati High School, um, but uh, came back to serve here in 1994 when I started my career here with Petaluma Police Department and have been honored and proud to serve in this community and with the men and women of uh, the department, both uh, those that have come before me and those that have served alongside me and those that are there now uh, still doing the great work that uh, needs to be done. It's, uh, it's an, an amazing responsibility and uh, a big responsibility for our community. Uh, I know that uh, at one point I tried to have you come on uh, when I was interviewing the staff uh, of the Meta Center for Nonviolence. And uh, I saw you, you weren't able to come that time, but when I saw you afterwards, I mentioned that I wanted you on the same program uh, as they might be, and uh, your, set, your response was precious, actually. You said, my business is nonviolence. That's true. That's true. And what, what does that mean? Well, I, I speak to that. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, police work and, and law enforcement, uh, you know, we're, we're public servants, and we are given the public's trust to maintain peace and order. And, you know, our greatest tool is our ability to communicate and influence uh, people. And when, you know, what we say and how we say it matters, and whenever possible, uh, we certainly want people to, first and foremost, be respectful and obey the law. But when we have to engage, when they haven't been uh, behaving that way or, or uh, you know, following the law, that we try to gain compliance verbally. And... You know, the use of force uh, as, a, as, a, as an option is a last resort. It's not the first thing that we want to do. Um, you know, we can discuss some, some statistics and some numbers, but I think because the focus, at least from the media sometimes, is those events where tragedy occurs. And, you know, when you look back, you know, there's an average of 68 million contacts between law enforcement and the community in any given year. 
and about one in 67,000 results in deadly force. And so the percentage that deadly force is actually used is really, you know, it's, it's less than 1%. It's like 0.0015%. And so officers are, are doing a great job of communicating, gaining compliance, and, and hopefully having it be done peacefully uh, without having to use force. And that's our mission. And so really uh, having to, you know, use force is, is not something that we desire to do. And I assume there's a whole protocols and hours and hours of training around how to avoid force as opposed to training in target shooting. Absolutely. De-escalation tactics, um, you know, how to communicate, um, you know, voice inflection, the words that you choose, understanding mental health issues, understanding how substance abuse affects uh, people and how they respond, um, you know, whether they're intoxicated, whether they're emotional. Um, you know, trying to find that way to a peaceful resolution is our first goal. Uh, that was, wasn't that the old uh, title for the police, as a peace officer? Yes, true. Wasn't that term? It's, it's still the same, still peace, officer. Officer, right? yes. peace officer. Peace mm-hmm. officer. We perhaps should try to go back to it, actually, and use it more. I agree. To get that into the mind of the community, that that's the goal of the uh, public safety department of the police department. It is, yes. It's public very important. Guardians. It's very important. So um, you've been in your position now for uh, over a year and a half, and uh, what's the department like at this point? Uh, I know there are many, there's some staffing issues and all that. What, what is, what's going on? Sure. Well, I can tell you, um, you know, the department, uh, our staff is uh, is doing a very good job with the resources that they're given to do their job, and you know, we have historically been challenged with, you know, not having the staffing levels that we know that we could provide all the services that we would like. I know that in uh, 2008, the city's general plan spoke to maintaining an average of 1.3 police officers per thousand uh, residents in the population. At that time, uh, the population was about 48,000. And, um, you know, we obviously, right after that general plan that ran through 2025 was adopted, we went through a terrible recession. Our, uh, our officers per thousand right now are 1.06. Uh, we should be up around 85 or 86 sworn officers. We're, we're currently at 66, which is the same staffing that we had 20 years ago in 1998. So it's difficult. We're barely maintaining a force and patrol to handle the calls for service that we receive. And that, of course, is the, you know, the main core of our operation. When, when the public calls and they need help, we have to respond to that. Um, additionally, everyone's talking about traffic. Uh, you know, that's a, a big impact. It's the number one concern when we have town hall meetings. Uh, you know, the town is growing. There's more cars. There's more people. And we've seen a 60% increase in traffic collisions over the last three years. And so we've been trying to staff traffic back to a reasonable uh, point, which they are now. But that also takes away available officers in patrol when they're dedicated solely to traffic enforcement. We're down to a very small uh, unit in, in, with investigators for detectives. We really should have many, many more. Um, but that, again, there's only a certain number of bodies that we have to spread out. You know, I don't know if you saw lately, we were able to get a grant with the school district to put school resource yes. officers back in. The only reason we were able to do that is we had to pull resources from elsewhere. So we had to remove a detective from an a auto theft task force, and we had to pull one of two 
homeless outreach services team officers, the host officers who deal with the homeless, the mental health issues, and uh, substance abuse. We had to pull one of them back to patrol as a temporary solution to put two in school. So it's very fragile. We're running, you know, six vacancies right now, officers that are out injured, four or five. And we're also facing a large attrition that's coming. You know, uh, in the next uh, 18 to 36 months, we're looking at as many as 15 retirements. So a lot of longevity here, which is great. It's a lot of experience. It's been working in this town for, you know, 20-plus years. That's great. And, and half of our staff lives in town. But that also comes at a price when there's a group of them that, you know, mature in this profession and uh, are looking to retire. So we, we have some challenges right now. Uh, certainly among the ability to get new staff in uh, who might live in Petaluma, the cost of living here, housing, all that affects Absolutely. It's all interrelated. We're also challenged right now. You know, we're running about 20, 21% uh, behind Santa Rosa Police Department right now, who's also actively recruiting, facing the same issues we are. And so we're, we're dealing with a situation where we have officers that are looking, that, you know, are young and, and they want to, uh, you know, uh, do things in life that we all want to do. And so they're looking at the difference in pay, which is making recruitment and retention difficult for us. And... It is the cost of, of living. You know, that 20% difference may mean the difference between them affording a house in this in the North Bay sure. uh, and having to move someplace else where they might not necessarily want to be just to buy a house. So those things are presenting challenges for us. And unfortunately, our nature is to want to do all the things we know we should be doing. The reality is we've been running at these staffing levels since 2008, 2009, and our staff, it, it, it's, it's wearing them thin. And uh, we're seeing we're seeing it uh, manifest itself in mental health. We're seeing it manifest itself in physical injury, and just generally, we're 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 wearing this force thin. And uh, you know, dispatch is minimally staffed. Anyone wants time off in dispatch, there's mandatory overtime behind it, and just it's not sustainable. So we've looked at an exercise now where we are reducing certain services that we don't want to reduce, but we just can't continue to maintain the same level. Uh, with the staffing levels that we have right now. So it's it's a tough time. It's a tough time for staff because they want to be doing their very best as well. And we certainly want to be doing everything that we th- know we should be doing. We just can't. Yeah, so I, I won't leap over into the politics of the solution, which has to do with dollars and taxing sure. and uh, et cetera and budgets. So we'll leave that with you and the city council uh, to figure out. But it's certainly uh, important for the community to understand what is actually happening in our police department, uh, given the scope of our community, the size of our community, and all the other issues that they're facing. You also mentioned uh, in that in our little pre-discussion about the pension issues yes. and longevity of police officers' lives. I think it would be important for our community to hear that. Sure, I, I, um, it's not a it's not a fun thing to talk about, especially yeah. being in the occupation, but. You know, we understand that, you know, there's only a certain amount of dollars to go around. And, and our department in the city is not the only department that, that you know, has gone through significant cuts. But, you know, we what, what we enjoy in this community in terms of quality of life and the relatively low crime rate is not by accident. I've been here for 24 years now. Uh, I know that as early as the 1940s that this department was sending leadership to the FBI National Academy. We were studying community center policing, and we've been policing the city uh, very aggressively, very community-centered for many, many years. And I think that, you know, when you look at 
us keeping the gang problem out of Petaluma, keeping a handle on drug houses when they pop up, being very proactive about keeping the communities safe and the neighborhoods nice, it's not by accident. And what we worry about is we begin to chase crime rather than prevent it or even apprehend criminals because we're so busy chasing the next call that we worry that that quality of life is going to degrade. And so, yeah, we need to work out a solution. <clears throat> but I would say that when you look at the pension issue, what's often for, forgotten is that 15 years ago when our, our benefits were negotiated, the average life expectancy of a police officer was 57. So when you retire at 50 and you only have a few, few years really to enjoy that, um, if you're not broken, I can count on one hand the number of officers in my 24 years that have taken a full-service retirement. In other words, they made it without going out on injury or something else. Um, you know, you, that, that isn't part of the conversation. And the, the latest numbers from October of last year from the Department of Justice that did a wellness study for law enforcement officers and peace officers is that the new average is 68. And the, the challenge, though, is, is that on average, we as police officers live 21 years less than a non-police officer in, in society. And, you know, we're, we're more susceptible to heart disease, to stress, to suicide, to, you know, injuries. And so, yes, did, did we get into this business? We did. But what we know from studying, uh, you know, the health impacts and the wellness of our staff is that it takes a huge toll, working shift work, working at night, you know, all of the stress that goes along with the job. And, you know, policing today is more difficult than it's ever been, uh, it feels like, at least to me. So um, thank you for asking, and, and that's, that's right. a terrible well, stat, but it's the reality. I've had the privilege of getting to know you and uh, some of the officers in our police department. Uh, I remember one night uh, uh, the burglar alarm went off at B'nai Israel at, uh, before you were chief and at 3 in the morning. And, okay, I went over there, and there were three officers waiting. And, well, they'd never been in the building. So it was a false alarm, and I spent the next 45 minutes <laughs> introducing them to the Jewish community. They were very curious and wanting to understand the community they were serving. And it felt good. It felt, it felt protected felt that they really cared about what was happening in our community. They wanted to know this one building, this one institution, uh, and the connection that we might have. And uh, I know that uh, each of their lives is affected by the kind of work that they have to do and the things that they witness uh, in their daily activities. And that, that is, to say the least, stressful. Yes. Stressful. Well, and you know how I feel. You and I have talked. I, I am grateful to serve as your police chief and to serve this community. But there is nothing I – am, I am so proud of the staff in our organization. Uh, th that's why my vision really is that, that, that everyone that we serve could know everyone that serves them because the staff in my building, they're great human beings, and they try their best to do uh, oftentimes very difficult work. And we don't always get it right, and we're people interacting with people. Um, but, you know, their heart's in the right place, and they're trying to do their best job. And, you know, you know as well as I do, uh, what's important to us is what's important in any relationship, right? We're serving the community, and so that's what we focus on, giving everyone voice, being neutral, showing everyone dignity and respect, being trustworthy and having the goodwill of others, often before our own in mind. And that's the experience everyone should have. And when it doesn't happen that way, let's talk about it. Typically, there's information that's missing or processes or procedures that don't get explained. 
Um, but that's the experience everyone should have when you run into our okay. staff. And there are some times when individual officers make wrong decisions and don't follow rules and all that. And we read about the consequences of that uh, in the newspapers all the time. Certainly. And unfortunately, that gets to speak for the entire policing community. And it does, yeah. It's, um, it's not necessarily... The thing I would point out to that point is that that is part of the difficulty of our job as well because we're the first to maintain our own standards and have to investigate and take immediate action and hold our staff accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and when it's serious enough that, you know, like a use of force situation with deadly force, we actually have a protocol here in the county where an outside agency investigates that. So mm-hmm. we care very much about maintaining the public's trust and with that come those kinds of standards and accountability, and that's also difficult. But you know, we're we're human beings, and people make mistakes. And we're the first, though, to take appropriate and swift action when things need to be changed or uh, discipline needs to be administered. I remember uh, your first words about uh, when you were sworn in. Uh, about thirty seconds later, you began your little uh, talk that evening, saying that you are neutral, basically, the theme was. Yes. Your responsibility is the welfare of the community. You don't care about uh, race, religion, immigration status, uh, any of those categories that we divide people up into, that the safety and welfare of the community is your primary responsibility. That's correct. And uh, I, I, I are you affirming that that mission uh, is still that, true that, today? Yes, that, that mission uh, is still too, uh, true today. So, what are the other issues going on uh, in terms of crime in the community, policing, etc.? Sure. Yeah. So we um, we've seen a steady increase in calls for service. We've we've seen some decline decreases in crime. Uh, traffic. We've already talked about. That's a priority for us. Um, <clears throat> two years ago, we we saw six fatalities. Uh, we've typically had more people killed and injured in traffic collisions than we have in criminal violent uh, situations and confrontations. Um, robbery has seen an 82% increase, which is significant. Um, a lot of things have been tied to that. Um, the opioid problem and fentanyl and the drug problem is uh, you know, stronger today than I think I've ever seen it in my 24 years. Um, and, you know, with that comes property crimes, you know, burglary, uh, theft from vehicles, you know, where we used to see a lot of unlocked vehicles being, uh, you know, kind of victimized and, and, and theft occurring. We're now seeing window smashes. We're now seeing uh, residential burglaries. We're seeing a lot more commercial burglaries. They're looking in and seeing things of value, breaking window and that type of thing. Um, domestic violence is still a huge problem for us. Uh, sadly, we respond to a lot of those calls. Uh, the number one call for service last year were, were mental health uh, crisis. And so we get a lot of people to mental health services, and that takes a lot of time because the crisis response unit is in Santa Rosa, which takes an officer off the street, which we've already talked about. There are very few. So when you're doing that two, three times a day, uh, that, that can be a drain on resources. A DUI continues to be a problem. We, we still respond to a lot of DUI crashes, make a lot of DUI arrests. You know, I think there's this general feeling that people have always said to me, well, you know, I've always left my door unlocked or I've never worried about leaving valuables in my car. That, that's not the Petaluma we live in today. They're, criminals are mobile. Uh, they're much more sophisticated. They're using technology. And they realize they can drive 40 minutes and hit a shopping center, a residential neighborhood, 
and get in and get out. And when we're so busy chasing other calls for service that we're not available to respond and intercept and apprehend, I mean, don't get me wrong, our staff does a great job of catching criminals, but there are far more criminals that make it in and make it out uh, before we can get there. Mm-hmm. So That's hard. And the, the mental health piece is, is a challenging one because at one level, the officers are trained around mental health, but on the other hand, they're not professional mental health uh, uh, workers. And so right. it's somewhere in between the policing and the mental health sure. worker that the police officer sits. Yeah. I remember I had to uh, call the police department uh, one day a I had a senior on the east side in one of the facilities over there who, who was uh, threatening suicide. And I had to take it seriously. I called a police officer. Um, he went, he spent an hour with her, which is a lot of the officer's time. And he was felt secure that she was going to be okay. He called me, spent another 15 minutes on the phone talking with me about it. And it just was really comforting. But I, I realized that that's not their primary role and training, etc. Sure. It has yeah, to be but done. it is it is a necessary part of the job. And whether we're talking to an adult or to to a, a young person, they they get a lot of training to be able to you know get to the root cause of what's going on and to make a decision about you know what's in the person's best interest for their safety. So they do a great job. The other thing we're dealing with a lot and and. The community probably hasn't noticed it as much because we've been so proactive with it, has been our homeless population. And, you know, homelessness is connected, we call it kind of the triangle of service, uh, shelter, mental health, and substance abuse. Kind of common themes in that population. We've dedicated two full-time officers to that, one of which I just mentioned we pulled back temporarily. But that is a services-first enforcement model, right? So we try to get them to services-first. If they don't want to take those services or help with their issue, then we, uh, you know, get them, you know, find another option for them and do enforcement. But that has really kept the city in a state where we don't see some of the problems that other jurisdictions are dealing with. So how's the Lynch Creek Trail doing? I know there have been some... A lot of attention. Yes. Again, one of those places out of sight, out of mind. They congregate there. And now the the host team and the patrol officers keep a frequent eye on that, which has reduced those calls for service. That's good. Yes. Um, and the opioid crisis? And, uh, yeah, opioid crisis, wow. So uh, whether you read the article this morning talking about K2, the synthetic uh, uh, cannabis, uh, or fentanyl that, you know, drug dealers are, you know, they're not sitting around with all the scientific equipment to measure it accurately. They're throwing some in, send it out. If nobody dies, they throw a little more in, send it out. Um, it's bad. We're, we're getting a lot more complaints. We're dealing with a lot more people who are under the influence of all kinds of drugs, but a lot more uh, heroin, uh, a lot of fentanyl. Uh, we're to the point now that our officers carry Narcan themselves so that they can administer it, not only to a potential victim uh, who's overdosed, but to also save themselves, because if they're exposed to fentanyl, and they don't have it, or one of their partners doesn't have it, they could also die. Mm-hmm. Um, the police dog who's trained to not only protect the police officer, but also sniff out narcotics, if they get a dose of fentanyl, they could die. So the handlers have been carrying fentanyl to save the dog. And so we can't, you know, you're, just imagine you're afraid of touching anything. You're afraid of potentially breathing in something that you can't even see that's going to knock you out. Uh, it's a very dangerous situation, and... We've seen a lot of deaths, a lot of overdoses. We're seeing some overdoses now where they're saving themselves. Someone's there with them when they OD. They administer Narcan before we get there or the medics get there. 
because their habit is such that they know that it's likely to happen. So it's a very, very troubling problem. Yeah. I mean, in spite of all these things, uh, you have labeled Petaluma as a relatively safe community. Well, I mean, you know, you look around, you can see we're, you know, we're not Chicago, we're not San Francisco, we don't, we don't have those kinds of violent crime rates, but we're not absent of crime. You know, right. we don't, uh, we just don't see the frequency of it, but we have it. And I, uh, I wanted to just to make sure yeah. that people heard that it's not all this. And I think, it, and I think it's also attributed to the hard work of our staff, not only those that have come before us, but those that are serving now, even with limited staff. They do their very best to be as proactive and aggressive with keeping the city and the community safe, and they do a great job with what they're given. I'm proud of them. Mm. Might you make a quick comment? Last September, you spoke at a meeting of the Community Relations Petaluma Community Relations Council about hate crimes, and you indicated there you know, it really wasn't a, an issue, and there wasn't too much of it happening. And yet, some reports that came out recently showed an increase in that. Yeah, two things I wanted to talk to you. I, I figured that may come up. So one of it is I think we in this county uh, maybe do a better job of being more aware and maybe report more events than maybe some other jurisdictions. So, you know, without having the time to research that, uh, it is a very significant issue, and clearly we have seen an uptick, uh, you know, and I think everyone kind of associate those reasons why. Um, disappointing, um, but also my staff is acutely aware of how important it is to keep that under control. And so uh, we have a zero tolerance policy. We respond, we document, we investigate, and we'll prosecute when that's what the victims want us to do. And uh, there's no room for that. And, you know, we, uh, when you fall back to those things that we've already talked about, um, expressing yourself or having those views does not promote a safe and respectful a community that uh, that respects and values every human being, and we we have to maintain that order. I want to thank you so much for choosing to be with us today on the radio. And any brief last minute comments that you wanted to make? Um, just if you get a chance and you see our officers driving around, uh, wave to them, uh, say hi, introduce yourself, uh, ask them how their day is going. Uh, they're they're uh, it's difficult to police in 2018. And um, they do a great service for this community. And uh, I thank you for having us so we could talk about it. Thank you. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted. During our second segment today, Emily Cherrier from the Argus Courier, the new publisher, will be with us. Thank you so much, Chief Savano, for spending this time with us uh, on the radio. And best wishes to you and the policing community. We appreciate that.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming live online at kpca.fm. In our second segment, it's an honor to welcome Emily Cherrier to uh, the studio for a conversation. She's the new publisher of the Argus Courier starting on July 1st, right? July 2nd, but yes. July 2nd, okay. (laughs) Well, welcome to the studio. I'm glad you could be here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be back in Petaluma. Yeah, where were you? I took a little foray into Texas, which was very different, obviously. (laughs) Um, Lived in Dallas for the last three years, but am very happy to be back from um, this neighborhood where I come just outside of Petaluma. so you've been, you were, I saw a little of your bio. You wanted to share a little bit of it in yeah. terms of your journalism. And why, why did you get this passion for journalism? And how did that happen to you? Um, it's very funny. I always thought I should have figured it out much earlier than I did. I was a freshman in college at the University of Oregon, which has a phenomenal journalism program. And I was, was good at writing. I always liked gossiping. It seemed like a perfect combination. <laughs> um, and uh, growing up in West Marin, I was, my father was on the school board. I was very involved in community activities. And, and this level of journalism, the community journalism, is where my heart has always and will always be. Um, being able to be a voice for the people who really are paying attention to what we're doing. Mm. So you worked at the Index Tribune? I, my first job out of college was at the Sonoma Index Tribune. Uh-huh. Um, was there for seven years. A fabulous place to be. But when the opportunity to be the editor of the Petaluma Argus Courier happened in 2013, I um, came over here to Petaluma and was the editor for two years uh, before I left for Dallas. Ah, okay. So, yeah, what, so what's the difference between the publisher and the editor? What's, what's the role there, and what power do you have? <laughs> I always describe the publisher as kind of like the CEO. I, I kind of oversee everything um, regarding editorial excellence, brand management, audience development, all of all of those important things. Um, we're part of a big newspaper family, Sonoma Media Investments, which is a great locally owned company um, to be involved with. And so we're very lucky in that, unlike many publishers, I don't have to worry about revenue generation or anything like that. There's a whole department of fabulous, much smarter than I people um, <laughs> who handle that side of it. So my focus um, is really just making sure all the pieces run um, well and on schedule. Oh, so it's, it's kind of like the business manager of the of the enterprise. Yes, absolutely. But because I come from such a strong editorial background, which is a little bit unusual for publishers, I've definitely got my fingers in the writing pot more than average. You'll probably see my byline pop up more than you would have John Burns, who was yeah. the wonderful publisher we had before um, before okay. me. And at the Argus, is there who makes the editorial decisions? Matt Brown, our brilliant, brilliant editor, um, is the driver of all things editorial. He writes the editorials um, and oversees our staff of writers. Um, So I will 
I would be contributing with him um, as opposed to to him. <laughs> okay. Okay. Was was there any um, battles around today's editorial joining with the national program of uh, the newspapers calling out the president because of his anti media anti press activities? We haven't seen any yet, but it's only 10.30, so there's still plenty of time. Um, We have gotten a pretty positive response on our Facebook page regarding that. I think most people, um, I hope most people, don't see especially community press as an enemy of the people. Right. Right, of course, and uh, I what two hundred newspapers joined today, approximately two eighty at this point. Two eighty, yeah, joined in writing uh, editorials. Yeah, uh, the today. Boston Globe led the charge, but uh, we were very happy. We published on a Thursday and could take part in it on yes. the right day. Yes, no, it's it's really very important. And uh, what do you see as the role of the press in the community How, in this in this particular climate today? What is that like for you? It's even more important than ever to to do our best work. I mean, we always have, I would argue, but we have put even more pressure on ourselves to be as transparent as possible, as um, pushing back on anybody who who maybe tries to tell us something off the record or keep pieces of it out. We really want all the pieces of the pie available for the public consumption. Um, You'll be seeing us link to a lot more primary documents, so if you don't believe us, you can read it for yourself. Um, And really just being as good stewards of the truth as we possibly can. Um, Luckily in Petaluma, people demand that of us anyway, so we're we're pretty used to it. I would say the best thing about community journalism is you have a very dedicated readership. A lot of the big papers have seen a drop in readership because they're fractured, but we are all Petaluma all the time, and the people here appreciate that. I understand that this week is the 163rd year of the Petaluma Argus. Is it? Yes, I believe so. 1855. Uh-huh. We predate the city by three years, which right, we're um, right. we're very proud to say. So you weren't the original publisher, <laughs> right? Okay. I might okay. be a vampire. We're not <laughs> sure. Um, no, no, no. There has been a wonderful legacy of this paper and this community. It is, I think, the third um, third oldest paper in the state. Um, we have been around for all of it, and uh, it's very cool to dig into our archives and see some of that early work and, and how much the town has changed and how much it stays the same. So, uh, B'nai Israel Jewish Center, my synagogue, uh, we celebrated our 150th in 2014. Oh, congratulations. So 2018, 154 years, and uh, I actually, in my office, have the original board minutes from October of 1864, oh, uh, handwritten. That's so and cool. And so it's that same historical connection. You're not always reading back on things, but you, you know you're a part of this legacy that, uh, that's been here for quite a while in this community and a part of this community. Absolutely. And I think that's why we take it so seriously, as we know um, we have big footsteps to fill. Anything that you, uh, when a new person comes in to a job, a place, they have a little different vision. And so I won't 
Uh, I remember I had a, a new executive director for an organization. He came in and he said, what, everything you did before was wrong. I'm going to help you make it right. That's not a good way to start <laughs> out a job. So I'm pretty sure you haven't done it that way. But I'm sure you have things in your mind that you would like to see different, creative, because you are you and John Burns is John Burns. Yeah, I luckily had the opportunity to work under John Burns for many years, so um, I definitely soaked up some of his style. But Matt and I are interested in carving our own path with that, which you'll probably see most prominently in the editorials. Um, the The news coverage that's been done is absolutely on point. Um, we are... I think the most decorated weekly paper in the state. We've won general excellence seven times, um, which is kind of unheard of. So we feel like we're doing a pretty good job in that regards. My main skill set, I would say, that I'm bringing to this is digital growth and development. We have a lot we could do on our website that would make it more fun, more um, informative, more something you'd want to come visit every day versus once a week when the news drops. Um, and so keep an eye on that. We'll be um, having a lot more activity on that website in the okay. coming months. So obviously around the country, the print media is uh, declining and digital media is increasing. What's that experience been like for the Argus? It's, um, we are no different than any other. Our number of print subscribers is definitely down from where it had been, but our number of digital subscribers is way up. It's, it's rising at twice the rate um, that we're losing print subscribers. So we feel like we're, we're staying pretty balanced in terms of readership. It just um, definitely hits the bottom line uh, because print is expensive to produce, especially in this current culture we're in. We've We've seen tariffs drive up the price of newsprint um, on Canadian paper mills extraordinarily high. Um, and so we definitely are trying to find new ways to engage our print readership, which is something we'll, we'll be playing with some different different uh, engagement opportunities there. New ways in terms of converting them to digital or new ways to make the print media more accessible, more lively, more... Mm, combination uh, of both. We know there's some people that just simply do not consume their news in their hands anymore. I probably shouldn't say this, but I have subscriptions to over a dozen newspapers and they're all digital um, because I'm on my phone all the time. <laughs> um, but we also are playing with ways to make the print product something that people would want to seek out. We've done an interesting study in that people who consume print media like that there's a finiteness to it, that there's a beginning to an end, and online it's just more and more and more and more content. You can never really consume it all, but when you get a paper, you can sit down and read it, and then you're done, and you feel informed, and... That has been very interesting that there is an attraction to that in this world where we have so much information coming at us all the time that you can have a, a consumable product that you know you can sit down and read and not feel overwhelmed by. That's true. I, I look at the Argus Courier on my phone and 
there are updates there all the time, and uh, which I, I actually like. I like the, work, the current news because I read the static one, but I also know that the digital media is more dynamic. Yes. And since the world is moving at a dynamic pace, uh, for me, it's, okay, it's good to keep up with it. But I know there are people who love the paper and want to be able to hold it and touch it. So you you uh, man- managed to mention the tariff issue, uh, <laughs> which obviously is uh, uh, not just a Petaluma, California, Argus Courier issue, but the tariffs that are being imposed currently affect people in so many ways. And you just slipped in there. <laughs> One way it affects the people here in Petaluma in that the newsprint available is costing more money, could lead to increase in prices, could lead to more encouragement of digital media, the elimination of all those implications in the long run for these increased tariffs. So, It's more textured than I think most people realize because we're being hit from two sides. The tariffs have run up the cost of all paper products. Um, Mills are shutting down because they don't feel that they can stay financially solvent. But we also have, I found this fascinating, I've learned this recently, Amazon taking a huge piece of the pie. 50% of the paper products created in North America go to package Amazon products, Um, 50%. So when you have a huge entity like that sucking up all the supply, well, demand gets really interesting. Um, I used to, in Dallas, right for the State Fair of Texas program um, as a little side job, and they were so stressed out about the rising costs and rising demand for paper that they bought up almost all the magazine print stock available and just are hoarding it in a warehouse somewhere in Texas. Um, That's the crazy things that this industry has not seen before that are now kind of frantically happening, Um, and it hopefully will correct itself. Uh, Senator Mark Levine has been a huge champion of trying to present some legislation that would neutralize some of these negative effects we're feeling, but that takes some time to work out, as we all know, and um, until then, we're going to be Asking you for those subscription dollars. <laughs> they make a difference. That's how you live. That's uh, that's very important, whether it be digital or print. Absolutely. Yes, yes. It absolutely um, does. In the old days, 20% of our revenue came from subscriptions, where 80-plus percent was advertising. Now it's moving towards 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those subscriptions, even if it's a few bucks a week, definitely make a difference for us. Yeah, the paper thing, it's interesting. I remember maybe 25 years ago when personal computers and all this were beginning to climb, that the talk was that we would be in a paperless society, that we wouldn't need as much paper anymore, etc. But that never actually came to be. And I'm sure the consumption between your statistic about Amazon and all of the print media still functioning and being used and people's desks making copies and stuff Mm -hmm. still happening. Yeah, there's definitely been a decrease in um, business paper use. People send PDFs instead of mailing reports and stuff. But 
it was more than eclipsed by the now everybody buys everything on the internet and that all takes packaging. Right, um, right. Interesting how those those predictions work. So how, another uh, newspaper question, which is letters to the editor. Um, how do they get chosen, and what happens at, at least at the Argus Courier, and is it different? Is there, are there different policies in different places? I have only seen one um, set of policies. Now, granted, I've worked at two very similar small right. weeklies. Right. We publish everything we receive as long as it's not covered in curse words or um, something that's completely libelous, which in my many years as an editor, I never saw one of those. Um, we, of course, don't always agree with the letters we receive, but almost every paper has a policy of just running them in the order we receive them. So it's, you know, you have a list going and you just work your way through the list. And sometimes you'll reorganize that if something's very time sensitive, like if there's a city council vote and it's related to that. But um, for the most part, we want to make sure everybody feels their voice can be heard and that they can criticize us, that they can add extra information that maybe we didn't include into an article, um, that they can just speak their mind on whatever issue that matters. That is one of our most well-read sections of the paper and one of our most important because how we're also able to keep our finger on the pulse of what people are interested in and what people think about what's going on in this community. Are there criteria for length of letters? I'm sure you get uh, multiple page letters coming in. We do, yes, absolutely. Um, I believe, and I probably should have looked this up before I came, okay. our letters are limited to 350 okay. words. But we have guest commentaries, which go up to 900 words, I believe, um, which are those longer opinion pieces that you see on the right-hand side of the opinion page. Um, and that is definitely something we're always interested in receiving more of. Um, How do you measure, you, you just said that it's your most read or one of your most read sections. How do you measure that? We do surveys annual surveys, and then also online numbers give us all sorts of what people are clicking on is right. pretty indicative right. of what they're reading right. most commonly in the print. So it's the online way. By the way, the radio station has the same thing. We're streamed live, so we know who's how many are listening there, but the broadcast methodology, we don't know how many people are listening that way, so it's the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of trying to figure out what people want. We're lucky to be part of this larger mothership company where they have all sorts of analytic systems that we get to piggyback on and know exactly who's clicking on what and how often they're reading us and how much of us they read, and it's, it's very interesting. And how do you get the questions for the weekly survey that you do there? Because that's, to me, I've heard people talking about that a lot in the community. Yeah, people love to love, love a poll. Everybody loves a poll. Um, we usually are just focused on whatever issue is in the news at that moment. Um, it, it's pretty easy to piggyback off of something we've had on the front page and say, okay, what do you think about what's going on with this? Um, and that's usually when people are most interested in that topic anyway. Uh, the Petaluma Community Relations Council, Council actually submitted a question a couple of months ago about how many people feel that they are prepared for disaster. 
and the survey results that were there because we sponsored a disaster relief program. We had uh, Chief Savano there and uh, Jeff Schock, the assistant fire chief, uh, there. And uh, subsequently, the fire department has done more disaster relief kinds of things. So and that survey was a good way to get people to begin thinking about it as the, this was as the fire season was coming and we know what's happening here in California now. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we're in the midst of this um, uh, election campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, we won't even talk about the national and the blue and the red and all those different colors. Um, the radio is in black and white anyway, so we can't, <laughs> can't talk about the colors. But locally, we've got a lot going on. So what's, what's the Argus Courier's role there, and what do you, what, what do you have planned? It's going to be a very hectic election season. Um, obviously, we have seven council candidates and three mayoral candidates, um, and that's just the city council race. I, I believe there's seven school board races. Mm -hmm. seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, we have multiple school districts and multiple fire districts. Um, so there's a lot of important decisions that are going to be made this November. Um, we tend to focus mostly on the council um, and the mayoral, and we will sit down with every single candidate and do our endorsement uh, interviews, ask them hard questions about what they think about important things going on and what they would do specifically because... A lot of politicians can talk, but it's action we're interested in. Um, we also host, uh, on September 18th, we'll host a very public, free-to-everyone uh, council night where all the um, all of the candidates will be there. We'll be asking them the big questions. It'll be a little hectic because there's 10 of them, but <laughs> we'll keep their answer time short. So it'll be a good chance to really get a sense of what the positions are and also meet the candidates and, and look them in the eye and, and ask them the questions that you think are important. Yeah, sometimes, uh, for me at least, when there are that many people running, it becomes really difficult to distinguish positions and all that. It's just it's overwhelming. It can be overwhelming Absolutely. for the electorate when there are that many people uh, running for office. It's always an interesting year voting-wise, too, because the margins get so razor-thin between each candidate, and um, you can have upsets more easily than some of the last few we've had where there's been only a handful of candidates and some popular incumbents who have won by landslides. I think this year is shaping up to have a lot of people who have similar views, and it's just going to come down to who campaigns better and who is more likable, unfortunately. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the things I noticed in doing my stuff in town here, uh, different uh, activist meetings and candidate forums and all that, the demographic of who goes to these things. And I'd be interested in the demographic of who reads the newspaper. Mm -hmm. I would say is 60-plus, mm, generally. Yeah. And um, what, what, what's, what's going on? What do we do with that? Because these older generations are going to be turning over to younger people, the responsibility for leadership in our community, and we need the engagement of the younger people. What, what can we do? What do you see it? 
I think Petaluma is actually well poised in this area. The young um, Democrats and young Republican groups in town are quite active. And we have some young candidates um, who have thrown their hat in the ring. Scott Alonzo is um, coming off the planning commission, and this would be his first elected position, but he he definitely has that younger sensibility to a lot of these issues. We're the ones who are inheriting Petaluma, and we have a lot of concerns about being able to buy houses here and afford to live here and uh, be able to get across town without wanting to pull our hair out. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just showed her my bald head. Uh, is that is that where, where that hair went? Yeah, yeah in traffic. Washington, yep, it's it's the worst. Um, and so, uh, nothing against the prior generations, but I think nationally there's an interest in and a push for younger leaders to step into the spotlight. What's the readership like? Our readership in the print product definitely skews older, but online we um, we're pretty ageless. I mean, everybody's interested in what's going on in the community, and Petaluma has a lot of young families who uh, definitely click on us at least a couple times a week. Good, that's yeah. good to know. So, in our waning minute and a half uh, here that we have left or so. Um, anything else you wanted to know about the Argus Courier, about your position there, etc.? Um, I just hope that everyone listening knows that we are doors open all the time. We love communicating with readers. We love getting feedback, even if you don't feel comfortable enough writing a letter to the editor, but you want to let us know you think we're doing a great job, you think we're missing the mark on something, we are both Matt Brown and myself are always eager to hear from people, and we will respond to every phone call, every email. Um, we are a part of this community and want to be good stewards of it in all ways. Well, it's been a pleasure, Emily, to welcome you here and to welcome you to your new position and spend this time talking about a very important institution in our community, 163 years old this week, <laughs> according to the Argus Courier, mm -hmm. and it's been great to have you here with us. Thank we you thank so you. much. You. So you all have been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming online at kpca.fm. It's been a privilege uh, for you and for me to meet on the, the air today with our chief of police and the publisher of the Argus Courier, another link that we have with the beautiful community we all live in, Petaluma. Thank you. Good morning.